You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Major Jason Giroux. Major Giroux is an officer in the Canadian Army, but also one of the world's urban warfare experts. He's been working with us behind the scenes for a while now, and I'm really excited to have him on the visible part of our work with the first of many podcasts. This one on 1943 Battle of Ortona, a part of the World War II Italian campaign. While we are called the Modern War Institute, I find as I continue to try to study urban warfare, and specifically as we shift to peer competition, peer-on-peer urban conflict, or when two major armies have met in dense urban terrain, I'm continually reminded of our history and really pointed towards World War II. Now, Jason is an expert on this very specific battle. He's also, like I said, an expert in urban warfare, and I consider him a peer. I'm really excited for him to tell us about this battle and introduce him to you. So I wondered if we could start you just giving the listeners a brief bit about your background and how you became an urban warfare scholar and, and as I know, a teacher. Yes, John. Well, I've been very fortunate throughout my career in the Canadian Armed Forces that I've been at the right place at the right time to do a number of urban operations training events. It started out back in 2001 after we came back from Yugoslavia and 3rd Battalion, the Royal Canadian Regiment, of which I'm the infantry officer of, did a year-long urban operations training package up in Canadian Forces Base Petawawa, Ontario. I was then posted to an Army Reserve Unit, your equivalent of the National Guard, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of Canada down in Hamilton. And very fortunately, we had a company commander there, now Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Hatfield, who was a very big supporter of urban operations. He understood that this was going to be the warfare of the present and the future. And so we did three years of urban operations training with this reserve unit. Forward to several years later, I get posted to the tactics school at Canadian Forces Base Gagetown in New Brunswick, Canada. And I was the directing staff for one of our career courses for Army officers, the Army Tactical Operations course. When I had been a student on that course a few years before, there was an urban operations package, which I was very happy about. But sometime between the time that I left and the time that I came back, the urban operations package had been taken out. So I endeavored as the officer in charge of this course to put urban operations back into the training curriculum. It started out with just a two-hour general introduction to Canadian urban operations doctrine. But thankfully, we had commandants and course officers for our other courses that we teach teacher at the school, the combat team commander's course, and the infantry dismounted company commander's course, who also saw that urban operations was going to be the warfare of the present and the future. And they asked me if I could develop urban operations training packages for those courses. This evolved into not only developing those packages, but actually planning and executing a number of urban operations training exercises for over the past uh, six years. What has culminated really in my education is doing my master's thesis on the Battle of Ortona, which is probably one of the most well-known urban operations battles within Canadian military history. Very fortunately, I have participated in, planned, uh, executed, and taught urban operations very intensively over the past six years at the tactics school in particular. That's amazing. And I don't want to offend you, but I will call you a unicorn since I know you so well and know that you spent decades studying urban warfare history, which is a vital part of my own study as I did not. And over the last five or six years, I've been immersed in it. But you have the experience as a practitioner and now as a teacher. That's amazing. And I'm so happy you're joining the team. And and it's going to be amazing force multiplier to the urban warfare project. So without delay, I'd like to turn it over to you just to talk about this very unique, important battle in urban warfare history, the 1943 Battle of Ortona. 
Well, thank you, John. Where I'm going to start off, of course, is the Germans. We have the German 1st Parachute Division, which is going to be in Ortona during this particular battle. I like to always, when I'm briefing the, the Germans in particular, I like to start off at the strategic and then go down to the operational and then the tactical levels. And I'll just spend only a couple of minutes on that, if you don't mind. But uh, the strategic, of course, if you know the geography of Italy, the Apennine Mountains, which are the center of the Italian boot. And of course, as a result of those mountains, there's lots of runoff, lots of rain and lots of uh, snow melt that forms these deep valleys that go out to the Adriatic Sea and the Tyrrhenian Sea. And as a result, the Germans throughout 1943 in the Italian campaign used these very natural obstacles to chew away and delay and trit the Allies as they moved up the Italian boot in the summer and fall of 1943. These defensive lines, the Volturno line, the Barber line, the Bernhardt line, etc., these defensive lines were built strictly just as delaying mechanisms because it was the Gustav line which was going to hold the Allies south of Rome. Germans could not allow the Allies to take Rome. It would have been a huge psychological and physical victory for the Allies and at the same time a huge psychological and physical loss to the Germans. So the Gustav line ran all the way from the western part of Italy to the eastern part of Italy. Originally the British 8th Army intelligence had believed that the Gustav line was just north of Ortona at a river valley called the Ariely River. And they thought this naturally because throughout the Sicily and Italian campaigns, the Germans would always defend in an urban area for maybe 24 to 48 hours and then would draw back to one of these natural valleys that act as obstacles and then build up those man-made defenses which were so necessary to uh, complement the natural obstacles that the valleys are. So there's this belief that Ortona would be the same thing. Oh, they'll just hold for 24 to 48 hours. They're really just delaying us to build the Gustav line back by the Ariely River just north of the town itself. Going down to the operational level, what was really happening was that Ortona was really built into the Gustav line. The Ortona was the eastern anchor of the Gustav line itself, which was completely unknown to the Canadians. So for many months at the tactical level, regular German Wehrmacht units and then the 1st Parachute Division took over the area in and around just west of Ortona itself and started building up their defenses within the town because they had planned on holding the Canadians in and west of Ortona as part of the Gustav line. It was vitally important for the Germans to do this because if the Allies were to break through Ortona and get up to Pasquera, which is just northwest of Ortona, Pasquera has roads that go through the mountain passes and into the back door of Rome. So it's very important now to the Germans that they do not allow the Canadians to get through or bypass Ortona because getting up to Pasquera would allow the Allies access to Rome, which is completely unacceptable. So for several weeks from September to December of 1943, regular German Wehrmacht units and then the 1st Parachute Division build up their defenses in and west of Ortona itself. The German concept of operations was going to be, the intent was to stop the Canadians in Ortona. The scheme of maneuver, they were going to do what in urban doctrine it would be a perimeter force battle at the very edge and then suck the Canadians in to the middle of the town using disruption force battle and then have a main defensive areas, have a series of main defensive areas in the piazze, the squares. And these squares were surrounded by various small arms and anti-tank gun emplacements. This is where the Germans were definitely going to stop the Canadians. And then they had a reserve at the north end of the town that they could cycle into the battle anytime they want. Part of the defensive program was an extensive rubbling program in which they destroyed many buildings within Ortona itself. 
only on the side streets, not on the main highway, the Highway 16, which actually cuts through the middle of Ortona. That highway served to be the 1st Canadian Infantry Division's main logistical route. And so the Germans realized, okay, if we rubble and destroy the houses on the secondary streets, we can suck the Canadians up the main highway, Highway 16, into the main defensive area where the the squares are and uh, finalize their destruction then. So there was a great deal of destruction in the town itself. We now move to the Canadians of 1st Canadian Infantry Division, the most experienced division within the Canadian Army at the time. It has fought through Sicily and Italy in July, August of 1943 and all the way up now until December 1943. They had been intensively fighting in Sicily, had been involved in the invasion of Italy, were taken out and where they did a lot of minor actions. But then just south of Ortona, the 1st Canadian Infantry Division is thrown back into the fight. And in particular, it fights at a valley just southwest of Ortona at the Morrill River, which is also called the Gully in Canadian military history. And the 1st and 3rd Canadian Infantry Brigades took a real pounding at this particular gully fight. In fact, so much so that Major General Christopher Vokes, the division commander, is sometimes criticized by historians for his handling of the division during the Morro River and the gully fighting. But at the end of that, the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, which had been left out of the battle of uh, the Morro River and the gully, is directed by General Vokes to go into Ortona. General Vokes tells the brigade commander, Brigadier Bertram Hoffmeister, sometimes nicknamed Hoffy in the Canadian military history. Vokes tells Hoffy, Bert, there's only a battalion within Ortona. The intelligence uh, states that uh, they're only going to stay for 24 to 40 hours. I just need you to go up there, pop the Germans in the nose, 24 to 40 hours, get them out of the city, and then we can carry on to the Eli River where the Gustav line is and really start hammering away at those defenses. So Bert Hoffmeister, who commands 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, he'd been a company commander commander and a battalion commander in the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada, which is an infantry battalion within the 2nd Brigade itself. The 2nd Brigade also made up of the Loyal Edmonton Regiment, the Loyal Eddies out of Edmonton, Alberta, the Seaforths out of Vancouver, BC, and the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, Patricia's, which are from Western Canada. He also has in armored support the Three Rivers Regiment from Trois-Rivières, Quebec, 4th Field Company of the Engineers, and the 90th Anti-Tank Battery from the Royal Canadian Artillery in support. So originally Vokes tells Hoffie, right, Bert, just throw a battalion into Ortona, pop them in the nose for 24 to 48 hours, and they will withdraw back to the Ariely and the Gustav line. It's important before we get into the battle, though, John, that we talk about the geographic factors of this particular battle, the geographic factors and the urban geographic factors as well. Ortona actually sits on a plateau, like most Italian and Sicilian cities. Most uh, towns are built on plateaus, and that serves multiple purposes. First of all, militarily, they're easy to defend because your enemy, of course, is fighting upwards. There also is an economic and an agricultural reason. You have your crops at the bottom of the valleys, and then you you live up on top where you know you're not going to be inundated with the rains or anything of the such. So Ortona sits on a plateau that's about 1,500 meters long north to south and about 500 meters wide east to west. And then you have the urban geography itself where the south side of the town is made up of large buildings which are slightly separated. And then the north end of the town has a lot of buildings that stand shoulder to shoulder. So you really have a defender's dream here. You have a piece of geography that's up on a plateau that cannot be flanked or bypassed too easily. There is a large ravine on the west side of Ortona that cannot be climbed. There is a large cliff on the eastern side of Ortona that's about 50 to 75 meters in height. And then you have the Adriatic Sea, which is just to the east. So this is a town that cannot be flanked or bypassed from the west or the east. You have to fight uphill into the town from the south. And so this Ortona really does become a defender's dream. It's on sitting on a plateau and you have this tough urban geography within 
the town itself. Before we get into the fight also, I want to talk about the Ortonesi. Those are the Italian civilians that live in Ortona itself. There was about 10,000 civilians that lived in Ortona before the Germans occupied the city and started their defensive preparations. When the Germans did arrive, they told the Ortonesi, you must leave the city. And in fact, if we find any fighting age males here, we're going to assume that they're spies and we're going to have them executed. About 90% of the town's civilians did leave the city, but about a thousand or so remained behind. The challenge, as you know, John, with, with urban operations is that many civilians don't want to leave their personal homes. These are the only residences they own. They All their personal property is here, and it is maybe the only way they can protect their family, and they have nowhere to go, and the Ortonesi were very much the same way. So about a thousand stayed behind within the city itself, and unfortunately, many were killed by both Germans and Canadians due to the artillery and the armor, and as you'll soon find out, the incredible amount of violence that was displayed by both sides during this particular battle. If they were remaining within Ortona, they ensured that they stayed down in basements and the tunnel at the north end of the city and the tunnels that sometimes connected houses as well. Okay, John, I'm going to talk about the battle here. A second Canadian Infantry Brigade is tasked to go into Ortona. Hoffey says to Lieutenant Colonel Jim Jefferson, the commanding officer of the Loyal Eddies, Jim, just go into Ortona, pop the Germans in the nose, and you'll be good to go. So originally, only one battalion goes into Ortona, the Loyal Eddies, on the on the 20th of December 1943. The Seaforths, the other battalion within the brigade, are directed by Hoffey just to hang out on the eastern side, on the eastern flank, to act as flank protection. And the Patricias, the 3rd Infantry Battalion in the brigade, are told just to hang to the left to act as flank protection for the left side. In in support of the Loyal Eddies, though, there is what we call in the Canadian military a troop of tanks, what you would call a platoon of tanks, a troop of tanks in support of the Loyal Eddies, a troop of tanks in support of the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada, and you have engineers co-located from 4th Field Company as well. On the first day, the Loyal Eddies are approaching the southern limits of Ortona, and they surprisingly take a lot of fire, and D Company of the Loyal Eddies, commanded by Major Jim Stone, Big Jim Stone as he's sometimes called, because he was a very tall, very stocky gentleman. He tries to take his company up the uh, the road, but after two failing attacks, one of his platoon commanders, James Dugan, infiltrates off to the west side and into a pensione that is right behind the German defenses. And James Dugan is able to kill the Germans on the perimeter, the southern perimeter of the Loyal Ladies AOR, which is right on Highway 16. And the Loyal Ladies are able to breach into the town itself. The Seaforth Highlanders on the east side, they're slowly making their way up towards the eastern side of Ortona, but they too are having some very challenging firefights with a series of German machine gun posts just southeast of the town itself. The Loyal Eddies break into the town uh, along Highway 16, and immediately they see there's a number of rubble piles, and these rubble piles, again, the Germans had done such an extensive rubbling program. The rubble piles are actually quite high. They're about 10 to 15 feet high, sewn with booby traps and landmines, and the tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment start to fire at these rubble piles in order to blow them down a bit. At this point, the Royal Canadian Artillery 90th Anti-Tank Battery was very well served here. Major Tiger Welsh of the battery decided, well, you know what? This is a German parachute division. They're not going to have tanks, but why have the guns sit idle? We might as well use them. So he brings up his six-pounder anti-tank guns and he starts blowing away the rubble piles that are on the streets of Ortona to allow the infantry engineers and the armor to further break into the town and make their way up Highway 16 in particular. I think that's fascinating, these interior obstacles. Actually, it is mentioned in 
U.S. military doctrine, but I, I've never heard anybody actually thinking about preparing a defense by rubbling buildings. It's fascinating to me. And, and the fact that counter is to bring up some anti-tank weapons to blow the rubble off the streets. You got me hooked. <laughs> All right. On the afternoon of the 21st, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Jefferson orders two companies up Highway 16. It's now called the Corso Bianchi. One company on the left side, another company on the right side to thrust and clear all the houses up to the Piazza Vittoria. The Seaforths on the eastern side approach and have a very heavy firefight in a very large church, the Church of Santa Maria de Constantinopoli. And that takes a majority of the day for the Loyal Eddies to get up to the Piazza Vittoria and for the Seaforths to fight through this very large church on the eastern side of the town itself. The Loyal Eddies eventually get up to the Piazza Vittoria, well, along with their, the tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment and their engineers in support. And the Seaforths are able to clear the church by the evening of the 22nd. And as per the usual, everybody stops for the evening and they have to contend with German infiltration patrols, which are trying to get behind them and cause some trouble behind the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths as they establish observation posts within the town itself. On the 22nd, the Loyal Eddies with tanks from the Three Rivers in support and their engineers, absolutely fantastic. A troop of tanks, four tanks total, sit around the Piazza Vittoria and they start blasting away at German defensive positions while the Loyal Eddies and their engineers in support, start clearing the buildings around the piazza itself. The Seaforths, meanwhile, their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Sid Thompson, decides to move his battalion up completely into the Santa Maria de Constantinopoli Church and just sit there. Remember, at this point, everybody believes that the Germans are just going to put up a token resistance and then withdraw back to the Ariely River, where they think the Gustav Line is. So right now, the Seaforths have no further commitments. It's just a loyal Edmonton fight with the Three Rivers Regiment tanks in support and the engineers in support. And, of course, the six-pounder anti-tank guns from 90th Anti-Tank Battery of the Royal Canadian Artillery. The Loyal Eddies are able to work their way through the Piazza Vittoria, and now Highway 16, which was the Corso Bianchi, now becomes the Corso Vittorio Emanuele. Colonel Jim Jefferson says to James Stone, the officer commanding D Company, I still need you to press northwards up towards the northern end of the town. James Stone, though, he's like, you know, we've been thrusting, we've been clearing these buildings meticulously, and we've been taking casualties. So he says to his commanding officer, Jim Jefferson, sir, what I want to do is instead of clearing all these buildings, I just want to bypass them all and get up to the Piazza Municipality as quickly as I can. Jim Jefferson says, go. Jim, you can do that. And that's what exactly what James Stone does with his company. He goes to the Three Rivers Regiment tanks and he says, I want you guys to blare your horns as loud as possible and drive up the course of Vittorio Emanuele. I'm going to have the infantry and the engineers supporting you. The engineers will be ahead of you, clearing the landmines out of the way. The infantry is going to make sure they're looking up to make sure that the buildings are clear as you tankers drive up the town. No worries. And that's exactly what happens. So with their horns blaring, the tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment drive up the course of Vittorio Emanuele with the engineers and the infantry in close support. And they get to the Piazza Municipality where there's this absolutely huge, huge rubble pile. It's got to be about 15 feet high. And once again, sewn with booby traps and landmines. The tanker stops and Jim Stone runs up and he bangs on the tank. He says, how come you stopped? And the tanker says, um, I think that piece of sheet metal there might have a landmine underneath of it and I don't want to go any further. Well, Jim Stone's pretty angry at this point and I won't repeat the profanity that he uttered to the tank commander at that time. But of course, the Germans realize, hey, the Canadians have now stopped their advance. Canadians start taking fire. So the Loyal ladies start getting into the buildings on either side, uh, on either side of the course of Vittorio Emanuele to start clearing them of Germans. Meanwhile, the Seaforths 
are moved up towards the Piazza Vittoria, which has already been cleared by the loyal eddies. And Hoffy directs Colonel Sid Thompson, Sid, I need you to provide a company to the loyal eddies. They're going to continue advancing up Corso Vittorio Emanuele. And so a company uh, is given to the loyal eddies to protect their left flank as uh, the loyal eddies do Jim Stone's penetration up to the Piazza Municipale itself. And that ends the 22nd of December. Now, it's the evening of the 22nd of December when both General Volks, the division commander, and Hoffy, the brigade commander, realize this, oh my God, this is the Gustav Line. The Ortona is the eastern anchor of the Gustav Line. The Germans are not leaving at all. And so now Hoffy has to commit more and more resources to this urban battle in particular. So he turns to Sid Thompson of the Seaforths and he goes, Sid, I want you to take your battalion. I want you to pass behind the loyal ladies and I want you to make your way up to the west side of the town. And I want you to fight your way up the west side of the town. And I want you to link up with the loyal ladies up at the Piazza Municipale. I'll have the Patricia still in reserve because I think the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths can handle this battle. I'm going to give you more tanks and you'll continue with your engineer support and you'll have your six-pounder anti-tank guns still in support as well. Meanwhile, the division commander, General Volks, he orders the 1st Canadian Infantry Brigade to try to move up the west side of the town, west of the ravine, to try to bypass and isolate the town from the north itself. When the battle restarts on the 23rd of December, you have now more resources being committed to this fight, both within 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade and both within the 1st Canadian Infantry Division itself. Now, unfortunately for the Canadians, they have reached the main defensive area of the Germans, the various piazze that are in the north end of the town, the Piazza Municipale, the Piazza San Tommaso, the Piazza Plebiscita, and off to the west, there's the Piazza San Francesco. These four piazzas, which go from west to east along the northern northern end of the town, are the main defensive area for the Germans. And this is where the Germans are now determined to stop the Canadians, thus adding to their small part of the defense of the Gustav line. The Loyal Eddies and the Piazza Municipale realize they're taking some very heavy fighting here. The Germans are being extremely stubborn. They've got over five machine gun posts and a number of small arms units and marksmen and snipers throughout the piazza. Even though they've brought up some tanks and they've blown down the rubble pile using the tank cannons and the anti-tank guns from the Royal Canadian Artillery, they're still finding it a tough go. And they spend the entire day fighting just through the Piazza Municipale. It was this particular day when Captain Bill Longhurst, who was the officer commanding A Company, made a real smart tactical move. Up to this point in the fighting, the Canadians had always entered in through the bottom door of a building and had fought their way upwards from the bottom up. Of course, that gave the Germans the initiative. The Germans knew the Canadians were coming in from the bottom all the time. So that's where they would put their small arms and machine guns and their booby traps. And so the Canadians were taking a lot of casualties as a result. Bill Longhurst thinks, okay, this is silly. We keep going in through the bottom door and taking a high amount of casualties. So they take a building at the Piazza Municipale and Longhurst calls up his engineers and his infantry pioneers. And in the Canadian military, infantry pioneers are soldiers that have been trained with basic engineer skills. And he says, right, I want you to put an improvised explosive against the wall here and you're going to blow a hole in this wall on the top floor of this building, and we're going to go in through the top floor and fight our way down. So the engineers and the infantry pioneers rig up some simple explosives, and they blow a hole through the wall. The Canadians throw grenades in, they fire into the hole with small arms, and then they jump in through the holes, and they start fighting their way downwards through the buildings. So the Germans completely surprised. Now the Canadians are fighting from the top down. This method of blowing holes in walls in order to avoid fighting on the streets and entering 
through the bottom floors in particular for this battle, this method was called mouseholing. This was not something new. In fact, the British in their doctrine had something called the vertical technique, where you made a hole through the roof of a building or you came in through the top floors of a building somehow by explosives, for example, and you fought your way down. But because the fighting throughout Sicily and Italy had not seen a lot of urban fighting, you did not have the Allies as a whole really practicing this mouseholing technique. Bill Longhurst just thought it up on the spot, and really it was just common sense. We're getting killed coming in through the bottom floors. Let's blow holes in the top, and let's start fighting from the top down. And then when we've cleared a building, we just pop back up to the top floor, blow another hole into the building, go into the next building, and fight top down again. How did they get to the top floor? I missed that. So what they would do is they would get into a building from the bottom and then fight their way to the top floor. And then now that they have that building, they can call the engineers and the pioneers up, rig up the explosives, blow a hole into the building joining it, and then just go in and fight top down. And then once they cleared that building, now they can just walk back up the stairs to the top, blow holes again, and continue top down. It's the same thing in the Battle of Morari that we just had, as you know. So they clear a building and get up to the second floor. How they, and I understand you're saying they're blowing a hole in the upper floor of the next building. How are they getting across that opening? Well, this is fortunate because by the time the Canadians get to Piazza Municipale, they're now in the old town of Ortona where all the buildings are shoulder to shoulder. Okay, got you. Yeah, if you remember earlier, I said that the southern end of the town, the new town, all the buildings were very spaced apart, but in the old town, they're all shoulder to shoulder. So that's how the Canadians are able to go from building to building. Okay, it makes 100% sense. And I, you know, I just want to make sure we weren't throwing a, a plug out for the, these guys called the Easy Bridge that developed the way to put a ladder from basically window to window to, to cross the gap. But if there is no gap, that makes it a lot easier. So while the Loyal Eddies are fighting through Piazza Municipale, again, Hoffy is trying to throw extra resources into this fight. And he has three tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment and two 17-pounder anti-tank guns co-locate themselves about 1,500 meters southeast of Ortona. And they just start blasting away at the German defenses just northeast of the Loyal Eddies. And these three tanks and these two 17-pounder guns continue doing this for the remainder of the Battle of Ortona itself, which is just absolutely fantastic that they're getting this kind of support. On the 24th of December, a member of the Seaforths now have been committed to this fight, and so they start working their way towards the west side of the town. But the Seaforths, very much like the Loyal Eddies, are finding the Germans to be very stubborn here. Remember, Piazza San Francesco is also part of that main defensive area, and so the Seaforths are having a tough time breaking into the Piazza San Francesco. On the 25th of December, it's Christmas Day, obviously, and the fighting is going to continue within Ortona. Unfortunately, the great thing about this particular day is that the quartermasters for both the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths have done their best to try to make brighten the day with a Christmas dinner. The Loyal Eddies quartermaster is able to bring up some pork chops and some other food and, of course, the most important thing, cigarettes and beer <laughs> to the troops up at the front lines. And the Loyal Eddies are able to suck back maybe 50 to 100 meters and quickly eat some cold pork chops and have a beer before they get into the fight around the Piazza Municipality. The Seaforths did it in a little more style, in all honesty. Their quartermaster, Captain Cameron, had gone to Colonel Sid Thompson and said, Sir, the troops are fighting this urban hell. We need to do something here to really boost their spirits. And Colonel Sid Thompson took the risk and he said, why don't we pull a company back at a time and we can have a Christmas dinner back at the Santa Maria de Constantinople, that church that they had fought so hard for in the opening days of the battle. So Captain Cameron and his 
quartermaster staff scour the countryside asking, borrowing, and borrowing, uh, and I put borrowing in quotes because they were really stealing, of a lot of food and uh, this absolute smorgasbord of soup, roast pork, vegetables, mashed potatoes, gravy, pudding, mince pies, chocolate, nuts, fresh fruit, and again, the most important thing, cigarettes and beer. And they they pull one company out at a time and to have this fantastic Christmas meal. And just an absolutely fantastic occasion because now the, the troops have this break from this urban hell. And then two hours later, they're back into the fighting uh, once again. So that's pretty cool. But you know, my immediate thought goes to that clearly they had to have secure lines of communication and they're applying combat resources to keep those lines secure to be able to resupply those frontline troops. Well, the Germans were now at the north end of the town. And while they are dropping artillery on those lines of communication, the south end of the town, the Canadians now are very much urban veterans. They know when to get inside those buildings in order to avoid being killed by artillery rounds. The 25th of December is also a very interesting day for the Germans because they have now realized that they are going to lose Ortona. The Canadians are steadily increasing the violence with their tanks and support and their engineers who are coming up with some very creative provides explosive devices in order to destroy buildings. And so the Germans realize that they've probably lost Ortona and they actually implement a deception plan to make it look like they're going to stay in the town itself. By this time of the battle, it is an internationally known battle. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's uh, Matthew Halton has been reporting on this particular battle for the past five days, and it has become international news that this urban hell, which is now being called Little Stalingrad, in reference to that humongous German and Russian urban operations battle that's just happened a year before, it's now being called Little Stalingrad as a result. And so now that it's being called Little Stalingrad, the Germans realize they have to hold it for as long as they can. They've had to hold it for as long as they can, but they do realize that if the Canadians continue applying the overwhelming violence that they have been doing so far, that they are going to lose it. But they decide they are going to pull out of Ortona on this particular day, and as a result, they installed a deception plan. What was the deception plan? We're going to increase the violence to make it look like the Canadians think we're going to stay here. And as a result, they just dest- they start destroying more parts of the town, planting explosive devices throughout the northern end of the town to have the, the buildings rubble into the streets. And they're throwing all kinds of obstacles and just like destroying tram cars and other things like that to try to make extremely difficult for the Canadians to advance up the streets themselves. The fighting just get so vindictive. On the 24th of December, the uh, the Germans are in a school in uh, Piazza San Francesco, and the Canadians are able to fight their way into this particular school. And it was only a section, which is the same as a squad in an infantry platoon up here in the Canadian Armed Forces. A section of Seaforths is able to get into the school, and it seemed rather easy to do. Uh, the Germans only put up a token fight, and then they withdrew. And so the Canadians, the Seaforths, were quite happy. Well, a few minutes later, the building implodes. The Germans had actually wired the building, and they they sucked this section of Canadian infantry soldiers in from the Seaforths, and then they blew the building. And so only one soldier from that particular section of Seaforths ends up surviving, and he would be found uh, three days later after they were able to go back and dig him out. But this is how vindictive the fighting is now becoming within Ortona itself. On the 26th of December, the Loyal Eddies are finally able to fight their way through Piazza Municipale. They now get up to the northern end of the town, and the Highway 16 here, the Corso Vittorio Emanuele, splits into three directions. You have the Via Tripoli, which moves to the Piazza Plebiscita, the Plebiscita Square, in the northwest corner of the town. You have the main road that goes into the Piazza San Tommaso, and then you have another road off to the east, the Corso Umberto, 
which covers off the east side of the Piazza San Tommaso. And so now the loyal ladies find themselves split in three directions, sending a company, one into Piazza Plebiscita, one into Piazza San Tommaso, and one just to the east of Piazza San Tommaso. But the fighting is still extremely bitter and very stubborn. And the loyal ladies are happy that those three tanks and those two 17-pounder anti tank guns southeast are still blasting away, firing 1,500 meters across the water of the Adriatic into the northern end of the town. Meanwhile, on the west side of the town, the Seaforths have fought their way through Piazza San Francesco finally, and they start making their way westwards up to Via Monte Mayella towards the Loyal Eddies. So the link up between these two battalions is going to happen very, very soon. There's more tanks and more engineers and more anti-tank guns thrown into this fight as a result of the violence that's increasing. And on the 27th of December, this turns out to be the last day of combat for the Canadians and the Germans in Ortona itself. Remember the part of the deception plan on the behalf of the Germans, make it look like the Germans are going to stay and fight it out to the very end. Hoffy readies the Patricias, that 3rd Battalion of Infantry within the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade, and he says, right, we've heard over the radio that there's an Operation Ortona. We think the Germans are going to counterattack and attack us through close air support. Patricias, get ready. You're going to be doing a forward passage of lines through the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths to knock the Germans finally out of the town. While the Patricias are readying themselves, the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths are continuing the fight. The Loyal Eddies, again, up the Piazza Plebiscita and the Piazza San Tommaso, are still fighting the, the Germans so stubbornly. And once again, the vindictiveness of the fighting. That's out of Piazza Plebiscita, the Germans have cleverly dismantled two anti-tank guns and put them together on the second story of a building. And so the three rivers regiment moves their tanks into the square and three of their tanks get destroyed by these two anti-tank guns. So the loyal ladies have to suck back and then attack Piazza Plebiscita once again with more tanks, more infantry, and more engineers in support in order to destroy those two anti-tank guns and make their way to the northern end of the town. At Piazza San Tommaso, the Germans once again show their vindictiveness. They lure a platoon into a building, and that platoon stays overnight. The new platoon commander, Lieutenant Bunny Allen, and I don't know why his nickname was Bunny, but his nickname was Bunny. Bunny Allen. Lieutenant Bunny Allen takes over the platoon, and in the morning, there's this huge explosion, and the platoon is buried underneath the entire building's rubble. The Germans had once again, very much like that school in Piazza San Francesco that the Seaforths had taken, the Germans have once again wired a building and destroyed it, and this entire platoon is killed from the collapse of the building up on them. Well, this enrages the Canadians, and Bill Longhurst, who had come up with that mouse-holing technique, just a few days earlier, exacts revenge by doing the exact same thing to the Germans. He actually is able to infiltrate into another building that's being held by the Germans. He withdraws out. He calls the engineers up. The engineers very quietly wire the building and they pull out. And then the building is imploded and kills another platoon of Germans. And Bill Longhurst is able to do this twice. Meanwhile, on the west side of the town, Colonel Sid Thompson is also tired and enraged at his soldiers having been put through this urban hell. They go into a factory, a mill that's on the, the Via Montemayella, where the Germans are putting up a very stubborn defense. They're able to get into the basement of the building. The engineers and the infantry pioneers are called forward, where they install a number of 4 to 25-pound explosive devices. They pull out of the building, they blow the building, kill the Germans inside, and carry on with the advance itself. The Seaforths and the Loyal Ladies are able to link up on the 27th of December at Piazza Plebiscita at the north end of the town. Piazza San Tommaso is being controlled by the Loyal Eddies through a number of fire positions at, around the piazza itself. 
So on the morning of the 27th of December, Ortonesi civilians who were in the town approach both the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforts, and they say, yes, the Germans have withdrawn from the town. The Loyal Eddies and the Seaforts continue pushing north of the town just to make sure that uh, that has occurred. Meanwhile, the Patricias are readied for their forward passages of lines, and it has been verified that the 2nd Battalion of the 3rd Regiment and the 2nd Battalion of the 4th Regiment of the 1st Parachute Division has indeed withdrawn from the town. The 2nd Battalion of the 4th Regiment had actually reinforced the 2nd Battalion of the 3rd Regiment when the Seaforths had been thrown into this fight back on the 24th of December. And thus ends the fighting within Ortona itself. The Patricias do their forward passage of the lines with tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment. They pass through the Loyal Ladies and the Seaforths and they continue running into smaller German elements just north of the town as they advance towards the Early Early River. But at this particular point in the battle, Brigadier Bertram Hofmeister, the 2nd Brigade Commander, stops the Seaforths and the Loyal Eddies. He understands that they've taken a lot of casualties as a result, and so this is why he has pushed the Patricias through the Loyal Eddies and the Seaforths to continue moving, advancing north of the town. Very smartly, though, Hoffie decides to bring in some anti-air assets, because now the Germans know that the Canadians have Ortona, and sure enough, uh, the German close air support sorties come in, two ME-109s lay bombs on paw in the town, but because the Canadians are ready, one of those ME-109s is actually shot down, and the Canadians, because they know that the Germans are going to be coming in with a close air support, there's very few casualties as a result. The Seaforths go back to Piazza San Francesco, and they're able to dig out Private Gordon Curry Smith. He was the one soldier who had survived the building being imploded upon his section. The Loyal Eddies, too, they're able to go back to Piazza San Tommaso. They're able to dig out Corporal Roy Boyd, who had also been buried for three days underneath the rubble when his platoon had been trapped in that building that had imploded upon them. John, I think it's at this point, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a few minutes just to discuss what happened after the battle. So, post-battle events, immediately British 8th Army directs that Ortona would be turned into a rest and recreation area. So the Canadians will now spend several weeks removing all of the improvised explosive devices and booby traps that the Germans have planted throughout the entire town. They'll also help the Ortonesi rebuild the town. The Canadians, working with the Italian civilians, do a number of events. They remove all of the rubble. They do a lot of demining and they inspect the, the buildings to make sure that they will no longer collapse. They clean up all the houses. They clean up all the polluted water wells. There's bath and shower parades, film nights, medical inoculations, water, food, shelter, livestock, and medical aid is given to the civilians. Civilians are paid by the Canadian military to provide a number of services to the Canadian and British soldiers who will come to Ortona within the next several weeks, thereby jumpstarting the economy. It wasn't all, of course, uh, good. Of course, there are military police officers that are inside the town to make sure that uh, no looting occurs. Unfortunately, some Canadian soldiers did find souvenirs that they would mail home. And of course, inevitably, when it comes to Canadian soldiers, there was some drunkenness in the town, but the military police were there to get a grip on that. Burial services for the Canadians that have fought throughout the town are happen also. And over the several months from January to April of 1944, Canadians, even though they had destroyed the town in their fight against the Germans, the Canadians redeemed themselves to the Ortonesi by rebuilding the town and establishing very strong, friendly relationships with the Ortonesi themselves, to the point where Ortonesi were inviting Canadian soldiers in for home-cooked meals and giving haircuts to the Canadian soldiers and doing all kinds of uh, nice things like that. So in conclusion, John, the Germans had a lot going for them when it came to this urban battle. The German 1st Parachute Division, certainly professional, determined warriors. 
They had weeks of preparation within the town itself. The geography, the natural geography, Tona being on a plateau that could not be flanked because of the ravine to the west and the cliffs and the Adriatic Sea to the east. The houses acted as natural fortified strong points. The urban geography was very challenging within the city itself, which made it a defender's dream. The railway tunnel at the north end of the town, which housed German reserves and allowed the Germans to avoid a Canadian artillery and indirect fire. The element of surprise. Again, the Canadians believing that Ortona is south of the Gustav Line and has no part in its defense, only to find out that Ortona is the eastern anchor of the Gustav Line itself. And the Germans only needed to commit small forces to the battle. Even though it was the 2nd Battalion of the 3rd Regiment fighting within the town, they could really only have a company of about 100 soldiers fighting at one time. The remainder of the battalion would stay up in the tunnel at the north end of the town itself. So many advantages for the Germans in this particular urban fight. How did the Canadians win? First was the improvisation of the weapon systems. The Royal Canadian Artillery using their six-pounder and 17-pounder anti-tank guns to blow away the rubble piles and to destroy German positions around the squares. The engineers, with their cunning use of explosives and improvised explosive devices, uh, grabbing German teller mines that had been left behind and rigging up simple fuses to use those for the mouse-holing technique using 30 pounds of 808 plastic explosive and putting it on a chair and withdrawing back from the building. I can tell you with 30 pounds of plastic explosive, if you have that go off, there's not much left of a building to clear afterwards. The tanks using their tank ammunition, using high explosive rounds to punch holes into walls where German machine gun positions were, and then using frangible rounds to fire into those holes to kill the Germans inside them. Good tactics, good coordination between the infantry, the tanks, the engineers, and the artillery all working together. This was not just an infantry fight. This was the infantry ahead of the tanks and protecting the tanks by clearing the buildings. The tanks behind the infantry shooting down range at German positions down the streets. The engineers co-located with the infantry using their explosives to destroy buildings and to create mouse holes. And then, of course, the artillery using their anti-tank guns in order to blast away at German positions around the squares. The mouse holing technique, once again, not invented by Canadians, but used by the Canadians extensively throughout in order to clear the buildings from top down, top down all the time. And finally, just sheer determination and pure and utter rage. The Canadians were put through this urban hell by these German paratroopers, and they started taking so many casualties. All they did was just become more and more angry and used more and more violence in order to destroy the Germans throughout the town itself. And so it's really this determination and pure rage and this overwhelming violence, which also allowed the Canadians to achieve victory in this particular urban battle itself. So, you know, John, Ortona, you could say Ortona is a small urban battle. There were certainly larger urban battles within the Second World War. We all know of Stalingrad between the Germans and the Russians and how that involved entire divisions, if not armies. You have the American Battle of Aachen in uh, October of 1944, which involved the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division, of course, even though they only threw two battalions from the 26th Regimental Combat Team into that fight. The Battle of Manila, the Battle of Berlin. There's a number of sizable urban operations battles throughout the Second World War. And even though Ortona was, I hate to say it, only just a brigade fight, it was still an excellent example of the Canadians becoming subject matter experts on this particular type of environment. And in fact, many Canadian soldiers afterwards would tour allied lines to pass on the lessons learned from this particular urban battle and so that they could be applied for future urban battles as the war continued on.
I 100% agree. And actually, it's an amazing battle for me as we look at, like you did with the strategic and operational context of how this city would be used in a operational campaign. Because I get a lot of arguments of avoid a bypass. It won't be a consideration in pure conflict. Like, no, this is a perfect example of how both sides, it was no way to avoid it. If you're defending terrain, it's a great bulwark of stopping a moving force. And also if you're the attacking forces, you have to deal with it. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And I think the tactics, it's all fascinating to me, of course, but I kind of drink the Kool-Aid, but the similarities between this battle and the couple episodes ago on the podcast, the 2017 Battle of Morari, houseborn IEDs, the mouse holing, the creative use of high explosive concrete penetrating weapons because of the defensive qualities that urban terrain already gives a defending enemy. And, but this, in this case, this isn't a counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. This isn't a, a rookie force. This is a, a very professional peer enemy defending urban terrain. All right, Jason, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think our listeners are going to love this and really looking forward to you being on the show more. I don't want to give away too much to the audience, but you being on the show more. So, John, I know that you always add a caveat to the end of your podcasts, and I must do the same as well, that the views and the opinions expressed within this podcast do not reflect the Canadian Department of National Defence or the Canadian Armed Forces. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.